The scripture today is from John 1, 19 through 23. If you're using the Bible from the worship center, it's on page 886, the left column, the last paragraph. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. This is the word of the Lord. Great to be with you this morning. Kind of feel like I, I, I need a, a lazy Susan. Kind of spin around, you know, and make it. I'm going to find every one of you and uh, get to preach right to you this morning. This text uh, takes me right back to March of 2014, my first Sunday preaching here is this was the text I preached from. It was just a couple of weeks after my first visit with the staff here. I hope you were warmly welcomed. I was, um, well, unusually welcomed my first time here at the church. I uh, pulled my rental car in and uh, got out of the car and was walking into the building to meet with the staff. And Diana Batarsi came by. Diana came by in her Mini Cooper and, uh, you know, Diana, she's gregarious and vivacious, and so she saw me, so she stopped to say hi, and so, hey, and we stopped to talk, and she's sitting there in the driver's side, and just, I'm just standing there talking. And then a, a student who was from a school that was meeting here at the time put his car into reverse, backed up, and crushed me between his car and Diana's. So I was uh, welcomed by being, you know, hit by a car. So, so welcome to Christ Community. And, and it left these two big thigh-sized prints in Diana's car door. I always thought we should take that car door and like hang it in the hallway as a, a sign of radical hospitality. Anyway, so, you know, I, I crumpled to the ground. I got a broken leg and a torn ACL and all that stuff. I didn't know it at the time, but I just jumped back up. And they're like, you, do you want to go to the hospital? Do you want to go see the doctor? I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm here to meet with the staff, you know. Because I came that you might have meetings and have them more abundantly. And so, you know, you're just running on adrenaline in those kinds of situations. Got through the whole day. And, but I can promise you, by the time I got back to the Drury Suites that night, it looked like a couple of softballs had been inserted into my knees. And I'm looking at them. And the whole thought of, like, let's go see the doctor seemed like a really good idea at that particular point. So I'm saying, Lord, what, what's going on? What are we doing? What do I, how do I do this? All the people in Austin said, it's a sign. It's a sign from God. It's a sign from God. They're trying to kill you before you even got in the building. Don't go. I thought it was a sign. I thought it was the devil trying to stop me before I got here. So I came anyway. While I was sitting there that night going, Lord, what are you saying? What are you doing? What can I do here? This passage, John's words here came back to me. I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Get ready. Prepare the way. And I looked it up where that all comes from. It's Isaiah 40. Brilliant passage. And it begins this way. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Tell them their warfare is over and they've received double 
from my hand for the sins that have been committed. And what's implied in that is that there's an atonement from God that perfectly matches. It doubles over. It matches perfectly with the sins that were committed. Everything, everything has been met by the grace of God. Comfort, comfort my people. But then, then he says, tell them to get ready. Let the high places, the mountains be brought low. Let the Let the low places, the valleys be brought up and build a highway in the desert because I'm coming. I'm coming. Prepare the way. So then, he says, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. God's going to do something amazing. So these kind of, if you will, three sort of phases of movement through what God was doing with his people sort of became a paradigm for how I thought about what we were doing. We had a season of just comfort. Get the air back in the tires. Tell everybody, hey, we're going to live and not die. Church is going to be fine. God's, God's going to do great things and amazing things with all of you. But then came that next phase, too, of prepare the way. Infrastructure. You know, and really, it's a, in, the, in Isaiah, you know, it says build a highway. That's road work. Don't you love driving down the road and seeing a sign that says road works? Your heart thrills at that, doesn't it? Now you go, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, delays and detours, and I'm, I just washed the car, and I'm going to get tar on it. Oh, what, you know, whenever I see a sign that says roadworks, my first thought is, well, I hope so. And, and so, so some of you will get that in about a week. <laughs> but we know that going, and we've been through this phase where we're doing tons of changes, and you guys have been amazing and beautiful because change is uncomfortable. But God ordains it to get ready for something. And he says, then the glory will be revealed. All flesh will see it together. And the people that John was talking to, they knew that text. And it was astonishing to them that John would go there. You see, they thought they knew what was going to happen. They thought they knew what the Messiah would look like. They thought they knew who they were, but they had to learn again. You see, the most important question in the New Testament is asked by Jesus. Who do you say that I am? The answer to that question is the hinge of human destiny. How you answer the question about who Jesus is is the most important answer to any question you'll ever give in life. But maybe in this passage is the second most important question. They come to John and they go, who are you? What do you say about yourself? And the people who had come from Jerusalem asking those questions had ideas about what they thought he was. Hey, John, are you the Messiah? No. It's very important that all ministers know they're not the Messiah. That's the right answer to that question. Are you the Messiah? No. Well, are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet that Moses talked about? No. All of their assumptions about who he was, he rebuffed. Well, who are you? I'm a voice. I'm a voice because John, you see, found his identity in the scriptures. He found his identity, his ability to say, this is who I am, not in human expectations, but in the promise and the call of God on his life. That's where he found his identity. Human identity, who we are, 
collectively and personally is something which is deeply burdensome to people these days. There's a secularist vision of who you are, of who we are. We are simply homo sapiens, one of numerous species wandering the planet in organized and less organized ways. Hundreds and hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of years ago, by chance, a great explosion took place. And the laws emerging out of that explosion we call physics. The elements emerging out of that explosion we call chemistry. Some of those elements began to combine in unique and amazing ways. And the way in which some of those, some of those chemicals combine to produce life we call biology. And the way some of those biological units began to relate together in units we call culture and history. Well, every bit of that is valid unless you say there's no author to the creation. That you are nothing more than an accident. That's a secularist vision. There's nothing about you that's eternal. There's nothing about you that's glorious. You're just dust. And that's it. Stardust, but dust. There's a traditionalist vision as well. For many people, you are what your community says you are. If you grew up in a traditionalist community, say in Central Europe or someplace like that, and your father or grandfather was a blacksmith, then a blacksmith is what you would be. That's what they were. That's what you were. That's what your community needed you to be. That's what you were. A couple hundred years ago, a whole bunch of Europeans said, I want to be something other than that, and a whole bunch of them packed up and came here. And so we, as American people, tend, as the sons and daughters of immigrants, and some of us immigrants ourselves, we tend to look down on that traditionalist vision and go, well, no, I'm going, to, I'm going to be the kind of person who is not in favor of self-negation. I'm going to be the kind of person who's in favor of self-assertion. This is who I am. But versus the modernist, secularist vision of human identity and the traditionalist vision of human identity is John's answer. Who are you? What do you say about yourself? I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Get ready. God is coming. John found his identity in God's call on his life. He found his identity in God's word about him. And it was unique. I'm a voice, not an echo. One of the great dangers that every congregation faces is simply trying to copy whatever they think is supposed to be working because it works somewhere else. But we need to thank God for the voice of God being heard in unique ways through all the congregations in our area. Whether it's Church of the City or The Belonging or Christ Pres or any number of different congregations you could name, Christ Community isn't called to copy anything that's going on. We're called to serve, like John did, with the identity that God gives us and the call that God gives us with the voice that God gives us. And part of that means getting ready for what he's going to do because he says, then the glory will be revealed. This means that you and I as a congregation of people are called to have a vision for the future. 
We cannot simply talk about what's been. We can't be attached with sentimentality to simply what has occurred. No, we have to be willing to make the changes to prepare for what God is doing. That's what Israel had to do. That's why they were so shocked. You see, John's word to them, get ready because God is coming, would have stunned them and also filled them with hope. When he said, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, that to them had a very special denotation. In their history, whenever God built a house, Moses' tabernacle, Solomon's temple, when it was dedicated, God would come with his presence and he would fill it, he would immerse it, he would show his presence. It was a bright heavy cloud. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod. It means heavy. That's a good hippie word. Heavy, man. God is showing up. It's heavy. It was so thick. It was so heavy that people were not able to stand up in that presence as God was among them. Those who were doing ministry had to get on their faces. That's what happened in Moses' tabernacle. It's what happened at Solomon's temple. That's the thing that made it God's house. Later, when they were in rebellion, Ezekiel had a vision, and he saw the glory get up and leave. And shortly thereafter, all the people left for Babylon, and they went into captivity. Jeremiah had given a promise that they would come home, and they did. Seventy years later, they were brought back from Babylon, and they were restored, and they rebuilt the temple. But when they rebuilt that temple... There's no passage that says that when it got rebuilt, back came the glory cloud. That's why when John stood up and he said, the glory of the Lord's going to be revealed, they knew that that passage from Isaiah was about them coming back, but they also knew that that part of the passage hadn't been revealed, that that part of it was yet something down in them. And you're saying, you're saying that God's about to come? He was. But you know, here's the interesting thing. When God came in Jesus Christ, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, it wasn't what they expected. How many of you believe that God's going to do stuff you didn't expect? Yeah. It won't look like what you think it's supposed to look like when the glory is revealed. Somebody asked me recently, what do you think it's going to look like? What's that glory being revealed going to look like? And my answer to them is, I'm not that smart. I don't know. I just know we've got to have it. I just know we have to have the presence, the living, heavy, vibrant, glorious presence of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ and communicated through the agency of the Holy Spirit. We have to have that. There is only one person who can take the Jesus of history and the Jesus of the creeds and make him the Jesus of your heart. And that person is the Holy Spirit. That's why the Holy Spirit has to fill the church and move in the church to take the message about Jesus and apply it to your heart and make Jesus real to you. You need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. That's why when John is doing ministry here in this place, he's telling them, you need to get ready. How do we get ready? Well, there's a few things I think we need to be aware of. You know, in August, when we kind of come back together after the summer break, we... uh, we talk about the things we're going to sort of emphasize over the next several months. And they're in this text. What are they? Well, here's the first one. Humility. Humility. See, the people were coming out into the wilderness. They had to come down from Jerusalem, out into the wilderness. They had to go to the Jordan River Valley, which was the lowest 
place on the planet. That's where John was baptizing. Who showed up? Jesus. Jesus came. Jesus came, and when he saw all the crowds, he didn't point out all their sin to them. He identified with their sin, and he went into the rivers of the Jordan not to be cleansed of sin. He had none, but to begin to cleanse the world of its sin. To begin the process of reclaiming creation. The water wasn't cleaning him. He was cleaning the water. And he was identifying with all of those people. And he's saying, your sin will be my sin. I'll take it on myself. It was a place of lowliness. It was a place of deep humility. How is that in our lives? It's summed up in John's word to the people. Repent. Turn to God and away from those things which are destructive. Turn to him. When we do that, when we turn to God and we turn away from those things which are destructive, we find him meeting us. Why? Because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. To this one I will look, who has a broken and contrite spirit, who is lowly and who trembles at my word. A group of people who are Mary-like, who sit at the feet of Jesus, who long to hear his word, who long to have his presence. That's a turning from that which is destructive (coughs) and a turning to the one who is life. That's humility. Here's the second thing, community. American Christianity is often characterized by radical individualism because our whole culture is. But you and I are called into community because Jesus said, I will build my church. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, you are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Holy Spirit. That's what he's doing. He's building you together. That means that one of the things we have to be aware of is that we're called into relationship with each other. One of the things I've enjoyed about the meeting in the round is that I can see so many faces. One of the things I really like about it is that all these seats back here in the bleacher seats, which I just can't stand. (laughs) I love all the people in them, but the seats, you guys are now really close. You don't feel like you're six miles away. Now you're really close. I can get at you. Now they're the most dangerous seats in the church, right? Right? I've kind of enjoyed that. We're called to be face-to-face with each other, called to be in community. See, this is the difference between a congregation and an aggregation. A congregation is a community of people gathered together and knit together in Jesus Christ. An aggregation is just a crowd of people who maybe meet, they gather, they gather you know, you could have an aggregation at a, at a football game and you'd have the whole crowd together wearing the same tribal stuff, shouting the same tribal shouts. But when the football game's over, everybody just disperses and goes their own way. There's no real commitment to each other. There's no real belonging to each other. There's just a shared interest. And that's it. When I was at Game 7, the glorious Game 7 of the 2016 World Series when the mighty Chicago Cubs, hey, anybody could have a bad century, when they finally won the World Series. I was there, and there were thousands of Cubs fans there in the stadium there in Cleveland. And I'm hugging people. I'm hugging people I'd never met before, who I would never see again. We had no commitment to each other. We had a shared moment of joy. But we had no responsibility for each other. The church so often can just be a group of people who've gathered together. Oh, we can hug each other. We can celebrate 
but we don't really know each other. Churches, as they're growing larger, and you're 20% bigger this year at the same time than you were last year, as churches grow larger in number, they have to grow smaller in community. So that's why it's so important that we're going to be majoring on how we dwell together in smaller groups. And I know some of you are going, ah, I don't want anything to do with small groups. I hate small groups. I just want to come to church and sing songs. And please, after that, leave me alone. But leave me alone can never be the banner of a disciple. Because when Jesus began his ministry, he gathered a community of men with whom he shared his life. And then he said, you go make disciples as well. So we're called to community. So humility and community. Let me give you one last thing. Mission. Why are you being built together into this dwelling place of God and the Spirit? Peter says in 1 Peter 2, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You've been called together to be a people that proclaim the name of Jesus. Not just in every nation, though we'll talk about that, but every generation as well. That every generation thing is important. You know, you live in a season where a lot of people are saying the church is just in decline. I say we're in a season where the church is discovering how desperately it needs the grace of God. I think we're standing right right on the cusp of a whole new move of God that's going to explode across the country and there's going to be a mighty wave that sweeps people into the kingdom of God. I believe that's where we're at. And we desperately need it. You know, just talking about evangelical churches in the United States, we open 4,000 new churches in the country every year. You go, wow, that's great. You know how many we close? 3,700. That's a net gain of 300 new churches in this country. Denominations shrinking left, right, and center, except in places where they minister in mercy and in the minority community. Know what the average age of a PCA member is? Not counting youth and children, just not counting youth and children, just adult population. You know what the average age of a PCA member is? 59.1. What does that tell you about the future? There isn't one. Unless, unless God does something new. Unless there is a then the glory moment. Unless we begin to understand that we've been given this mission to the nations and a mission to the generations and we begin to take it seriously. That we find our identity in Christ. You see, when Jesus comes on the scene, he brings us into a place where neither self-assertion or self-negation sum up who we are. He hangs on the cross to die for our sins and to unite us to himself. And he says, you can find your life, your new life, your true identity in me. And that's why Paul then writes to the ancient Christians. And he says, if anyone is in Christ, is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has become. There are secularists who want to tell you you're just dust. There's traditionalists who want to tell you just to obey the rules. There are 
marketers who want to tell you to just be all you can be and be a positive thinker and just get all of the stuff you can, all the dreams in your heart. But what you find is, as Sigmund Freud rightly noted, there are just conflicting desires in our hearts. And guilt is the thing that acts as the moral policeman to keep us from exposing how dark we could be. But Freud had no answer for the guilt. And Jesus says, I'll forgive your guilt and I'll change your heart. And you'll discover that you're more than